You're listening to the Mojo Record Club. You're listening to the Mojo Record Club. You're listening to the Mojo Record Club. The Mojo Record Club. The Record Club. Hello, I'm Mike Scott from the Waterboys. Welcome to Season 2 of the Mojo Record Club. Hello, I'm Andrew Mayle and you're listening to the Mojo Record Club, a place where music lovers, musicians, crate diggers, writers, readers and special guests get to share their love for classic albums, weird lost gems and brand new revelations. My guests today are Mojo editor John Mulvey and the Edinburgh-born music visionary and Waterboys founder and frontman Mike Scott. Very, very nice to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you. Mike has been making music for, I think, nearly 50 years, mostly at the helm of incantatory Celtic visionaries, the Waterboys. And in that time, he has created a series of remarkable albums that include, but are not limited to, this is the Sea, Fisherman's Blues, A Pagan Place, Room to Roam, An Appointment with Mr. Yates, and Bring Them All In. Over the past decade, he's also been revisiting and excavating his past. In 2013, there was Fisherman's Box, the complete Fisherman's Blues sessions, 1986-1988. And then in 2021, we had the Magnificent Seven, charting the Room to Roam period. And now... We have 1985, a 95-track, six-CD immersion into the profound depths of This Is The Sea, including unreleased tracks, demos, alternative versions, outtakes, live recordings, TV and radio sessions, a remastered version of the album itself, and a beautiful 220-page hardcover book written by Mike, containing a first-hand account of the creation of the album. Before we speak to the Panish Bohemian himself, let's listen to one of the many forthcoming delights from 1985, a fast-tempo, almost northern soul-beat version of This Is The Sea, with the great Tom Verlaine on guitar, written by Mike Scott and released on Chrysalis Records. Trying to make sense now And you know that you once held the key but that was the river This is the sea yeah, 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 yeah. Mike, what was it like revisiting this year of this period of wild creation, but also revisiting the person at the heart of it. What do you make of him now? You mean myself, my youngest? Yeah. Son. You. He's, not, he's not a stranger to me, Andrew. He's, kind of in, <laughs> he's inside here anyway. I've got access to him all the time. He's, he's a collaborator and ally of mine still. Do you feel he's he, you, has changed much since that time, that period? Not that much, really, no. No. Do you think feel like your perspective was formed then and you've kind of just carried that through into the rest of your life? Oh, it's definitely a younger younger perspective. I've learned a lot since then. And I've learned a lot as a, as a, a musician and a producer of records as well. Yeah. I can hear all the mistakes that I was making at the time and when I would pick the wrong combination of musicians and uh, and instead of realising quickly, I would, would labour on and 
I, I hear all that very clearly when I, I heard it when I was working on the box set. Uh, and my decision-making process is much faster, more immediate now. But I suppose, I mean, there is, of course, a two-CD version of This Is The Sea, released back in 2004. Yeah. So I, I guess the question is, what was the desire to go deeper? Do you know, the, the chap from Blue Raincoat, which is the, the company that Chrysalis has morphed into, came to me about, about four years ago and asked me if I, I had enough unreleased stuff from This Is The Sea to do a box. And at first I thought, no, we did the two-CD, that, that's all the best stuff. But... It was sufficiently intriguing that I went back to my boxes of tapes and, and my hard drives and looked at what what did I really have. And I thought maybe I do have enough. And if I used some of the, the lead up period, the year leading up to the making of the album and includes the very early demos and the live tracks that, that showed how the band grew, then maybe it could work. And, and of course, as I explored it and went deeper and deeper into the recordings, I found more and more stuff when um when you when you were saying a minute ago about how you think now about maybe some of the choices you made weren't weren't necessarily the best ones do you do you do you have a perspective at all i always think when all these dylan bootleg box sets come out these vast session box sets mm-hmm. that you know i i i strongly suspect that Dylan's agency in choosing in combi- compiling these box sets is pretty minimal, unlike the way that you work on your Waterboys ones. But there's a very strong sense that Dylan doesn't have a fixed idea of the ultimate version of a song, that songs are always in flux, that there's no canonical take. Is that something that you feel more when you're investigating these tapes nowadays, that that you know there's not just one version of this is the sea there's eight versions and they're all of kind of sort of equal importance or relatively equal importance well in terms of takes purely takes i i think usually the master take that i've picked is the right one i think i'm good at making a choice between maybe 10 different takes recorded on one day which is the record i can do that uh, and I, i'm not sure if bob does I, I bought that that box set where it had all the recordings from 65 to 66. And and there are four versions of Side-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands. I was particularly eager to hear that. And I played them. And, of course, they picked the right one. Bob Johnson picked it, the yeah. producer. And they definitely picked the by far and away the best take. <clears throat> so I like to, to flatter myself that I can do that too with my own records. But when it comes to different versions recorded at different times with different arrangements, again, usually I think I pick the best one, but I think the other ones, if they're sufficiently different, are, are of a lot of interest. Definitely, and I think that's what sustains a 95-track box set of what's ostensibly a year's worth of music making. You know, it's kind of, it's not really... I suppose that's the big difference with something like the Fisherman's Box, especially because that covered such a long period of time and so many kind of evolutions of the band within that period. Whereas this is a is a tighter and more uh, sort of focused session of songs, but it's yes. but there's still huge kind of leaps and varieties within it, which I, I was really surprised about, I think. Yeah, especially with the title track, with the, the version yeah. you just played, and, and then there's the drum dramatics version where Carl and I are playing it for 17 minutes or something. Very different. That's I absolutely love that track. It's kind of, um, I just, you can get completely 
lost in it. And I was thinking about that. I was thinking about, obviously, you you guys, I've read interviews, you, you guys, you know, don't talk now, you're not in touch. But what was it like going back into that world of collaboration with Carl? And also, I suppose, incidentally, did you have to communicate with him in preparation for the release and get any consent or anything? Yeah. No, because all the recordings that are on the box set are, are seen as Waterboy's recordings. Yeah. The only track where, where we did have to ask his permission was for his home demo of Don't Bang the Drum. Right. You know, he, he wrote most of the music for Don't Bang the Drum. Uh, I revised it a bit after he, he did his bit, but but at first he wrote the music and he did this wonderful demo. It, it was in a, with a, a kind of a, a Detroit beat and it sounded modern and retro at the same time. It was beautiful and, and I loved it and I still love it and I, 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 I transferred it and EQ'd it and put the new compression on it for the box set. Thought it was sounding great. And I thought it'd be so wonderful for people to hear the way that he did it. Because uh, I always, you asked how do I feel about revisiting those tracks, listening to them. I always love the tracks that I did with Carl and the stuff I did in his home studio with him. They're so beautiful. I just love them. Uh, and I don't have any sort of personal issues digging them or anything like that. Uh, and I love all the stuff that he played. I'm so grateful that he's on the record and, and brought a wonderful artistry to it. Um, but unfortunately, he didn't give us permission to use that version of Don't Bang the Drum. Oh. Uh, I, he, the only reason that I got, which was from the, the chap at the record company who was who was talking to him, was that it was never intended for release and he didn't want it to come out now. So I have to respect his choice. You know, given the way things worked out, I think you're incredibly generous in the way that you write about his contributions to the record in 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 the book. It's like you're not you don't stint from praising what he brought to the record and what he brought to the band in that period. Well, because it's the truth, yeah. uh, it, John. It's the truth that he brought an awful lot to the band, and I, I really love the things that he played and, and his contributions. And I won't let the fact that sometimes he, he could be a complete dickhead about me to spoil that. <laughs> It's it's like, but at the same time, while giving him that respect and uh, praise, I think you also point up the underlying tensions which became ever more prevalent in your working relationship about the way that he wanted to use synthesizers, for instance, the mm. modernization or, or or the eight modernization is the wrong word, the the eightiesification of. Mm how he wanted records to sound was something yeah. a little at odds with you, maybe. Well, you see, he found himself, he was in someone else's band, so I would always make the final decisions, and I think that was frustrating for him. And my favourite instrument of all the things that he played, two favourite instruments were Hammond organ. My God, he's a master Hammond organ player. That's him on This Is The Sea that we just yeah. heard. Brilliant player. And also his his synth bass, which he plays on The Whole of the Moon, Don't Mind the Drum, Old England, and I think The Pan Within. Absolutely masterful. Played, played with his hand on the keyboard with a real stubby bass sound. And I loved that so much. And for me, that's a that's a method of using the synth that is original. Yeah. And I loved that. And I didn't want to have lots of synth pads and synth synths replacing brass sections and you know, I was listening to Dancing in the Dark by Bruce Springsteen. It came on in a taxi I was in recently, made in 1984, of course. And it's got synth that da 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 the central riff. And I always thought that synth sounded a bit, bit polite, really. 
And I was imagining what well, it's really a brass part. Now, if you had a session going, you know, that real slow horn session, it sounded magnificent. And and that's what I was into at the time. And so I wasn't going to replace the ideas of using horns like a medicine bow and stuff with, with synth pads. It just didn't attract me. But when Carl would do something original, like those magnificent bass playing or the parts in the whole of the moon, then I was good with it. And that the point you were making about his Hammond playing that that version of Medicine Jack, which I think was a B side, wasn't yes, it? Indeed. Where he's amazing on that. It's like Steve Winwood or something. Brilliant. It's just brilliant. You were yeah. saying a little. Well, we were talking a little bit about Dylan earlier, and there is a uh, Dylan-related unheard track on the box set, isn't there? There is indeed. Can you spill the beans? I got an invitation to go and play with Bob in late 85. He'd heard The Hole of the Moon and liked it. <clears throat> and we had a mutual friend, uh, a lady who worked in the music business, and she passed on this invitation. So I turned up at the studio. It was Dave Stewart's studio, the church in North London. And I brought Stephen Anto with me, uh, with permission, of course. Uh, and we sat in for about two or three hours playing, playing music with Bob and Dave and their band of players. The only one I, I, I know for sure was Clem Bark on drums. I don't know who the other guys were, but it was a really good session band. And we played, oddly enough, we, we weren't playing songs with Bob singing. We were playing all instrumentals. And I think the, the method they were using was that Bob would write lyrics for them later. Uh, and one of the instrumentals was a, 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 a lovely chord sequence that, that we must have played enough times for us to remember it. Because the next day we were across on the other side of London auditioning musicians. And we had Dave Ruffy from the Ruts and Aztec Camera on drums. And we had Guy Chambers later to co-write Angels and so on with Robbie Williams on piano. Guy was just a young cat then in his long leather coat, his curly blonde hair. He was kind of like Carl Mark II, in fact, visually. And, and while we were auditioning them, I thought, oh, let's do that Bob Dylan instrumental from from yesterday. I can remember the chords. So we played our version and because it was an audition, I had the tape recorder on and I got a recording of it. So when I came to work on the box set, I thought, I wonder if that, that audition recording is good enough to use on a box set. And, and, and luckily it was. It was a lovely clean recording. It was about 11 minutes long. Um, so I, I edited it to three, the three best minutes. And then we got in touch with Bob's management to find out, well, can we have permission to use this because it's unreleased? And what's it called? And they came back and they said, yes, you can release it. It's called Meridian West. And to my great delight, they sent me uh, an MP3 of the day we played with Bob. Oh, Doing wow. the same tune. Really Fantastic. nice. Fantastic. Oh, yeah. that's amazing. So how close was it? How close was your version that you'd memorised to, to Dylan's version? Well, this is the funny thing, John. Our version was really... It was the same chord sequence, of course. It was the same same musically, but the arrangement was totally different. And wow. we played it kind of slinky and understated. But but in Bob's session, it, it was quite it was quite um, quite boisterous, faster, boisterous with loud sax, loud keyboards. I don't know who was playing the keyboards, and and so in my memory, of course, I thought we played it just the same as Bob did. Yeah. But actually, we we recast it without realizing. Oh, that's brilliant. Your version has this kind of sort of Pat Garrett vibe to it, if there's any kind of 
sort of Dylan reference points okay. that I can make to it. It's a lovely, understated version. Yeah, it's gorgeous. And, yeah, and gorgeous. Guy plays some beautiful piano. Other than the Dylan track, what would you say is your favourite unearthed gem from the sessions, Mike? Uh, the, the track you played, the Tom Berlin, This Is The Sea, uh, the live version of Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, maybe, that's on the first CD. Yeah. Um, and the, the very long This Is The Sea with Carl on the drum machine. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely gorgeous. We might, if we've got time, we might even sort of squeeze in a little snippet of yeah. that because it's so sort of hypnotic and uh, oh, it's gorgeous. Yeah. He's lovely. playing the drum machine with his fingers. It was, you, I first... was reading, yeah, you, I yeah. read that, yeah, which is yeah. just astonishing. Yeah, yeah. it's got it's a utterly sort of unique sort of quality to it. Yeah, it's very organic. Yeah, yeah, organic with non-organic sounds which makes it interesting yeah absolutely um john you before we go into i'd I'd invented a perfect segue hadn't i you had Um, and then then forgot about it i was gonna say one one of the (laughs) one of the things about the box set is you talk quite a lot about the um the book of spells that you bought in new york that you wrote The, the the blank book that you bought um, yeah. that you wrote a lot of the lyrics in, and um, when I was doing some research around it, I found that the shop that you bought it in in New York, Magical Child, that's magical yes. with a K, of course, um, and child with an E. Um, how could it not be? Um, <laughs> it, it was also often frequented by John Lennon. I discovered. Oh, obviously. I didn't know that. Yeah. Apparently wow. So yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. Obviously, a bit earlier, yeah. but um, it, it seems to have been quite, um, quite, a, quite a sort of um, a key place in the New York sort of Wiccan esoteric black yes. magic scene it's in quite the seventies. Pagan yeah. hub. Yeah. 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 Which leads us neatly, Andrew. Yes, into the uh, record, Mike, that you've brought in to talk about today, and it is an obscure one. A private press release from 1971 <laughs> that very few people have heard of. It is John Lennon's Imagine. Now, before we discuss it, let's hear a little sample. Maybe not the obvious one, but one of my favorite tracks off the album. This is Oh My Love, written by John Lennon and Yoko Ono and released on Apple Records. I see the clouds, oh, I see the sky. Everything is clear in our world Oh my love For the first time in my life My mind is wide open Oh my love For the first time in my life Mojo Record Club. Mike, can you remember when you would have first heard Imagine? Yes, I was 13 years old. Or was I? No, I was 12 years old. And it was in a record shop in Edinburgh, John Menzies at the West End of Princess Street. And I remember listening to it in one of those old listening booths, you know, where they would have the speakers built into the wall. And listening to the whole of Side One, 
in that booth. Yeah, I probably bought it that day as well. And can you also remember what your response to it was hearing? Because it's such, it's an album that is now so ingrained into, you know, the psyche of the 20th century, you know, kind yeah. of it's, it's an album that in, in one of those ways, one of those envious things is to be able to have heard it before anyone had heard it, to come to it afresh, to yes. come to it anew without any kind of, you know, narrative surrounding it. Um, what mm -hmm. was that like? Well, of course, this was the week it came out yeah. in 71. And and at that time, my listening wasn't sophisticated enough to to be able to separate the parts of the whole. I just really heard the melody and the atmosphere as a, as mm. a single thing. And and I, I loved particularly Imagine and Jealous Guy at the yeah. And I also loved uh, I Don't Want to Be a Soldier, Mama, I Don't Want to Die. It sounded amazing in the record shop listening booth. That cavernous sound, Jim Kellner's drums and then King Curtis on the side. I didn't know who they were at the time, I suppose, till I read the record sleeve. Even then, I still didn't know who they were. They were just names then. But the, the sound of that, that plastic almost sound coming through the speakers... And I was a huge Beatles fan. Of course, I knew all the Beatles music. I was old enough to have grown up with the Beatles and, and to have heard, heard all the records really from She Loves You onwards in real time. So, and had you, heard, had you also heard the first Lennon solo album? Had you heard Plastic Ono Band? Yes, I had, yes. And how did this feel like a, a shift? It, it was like uh, Plastic Ono Band... I didn't have the word then, but Plastic Ono Band was minimal. There was yeah. no decoration on it. And sometimes no lead instrument, like Mother, it's just piano, bass and drums, no no top line instrument. Mm. Whereas Imagine was, was fully orchestrated and decorated. That was the difference. It's a record that, it's weird to think of it. I was going to say, I was going to use the word divisive, but I think it is these days. I think it's a divisive record. I think it's a record that people have kind of quite strong opinions on it. Some people love it unreservedly. Some people kind of can't stand the title track, for example. And I wonder how your relationship to it has changed down the years and what it was like kind of coming back to it for, for this program. I think over the years, my, my, preferences of which songs I like and which I don't have, have hardened up. Mm. My favourite track was always Jealous Guy and still is my favourite track. It's it's one of the, the, the couple of tracks where I think he achieves Beatle quality on the record. Yeah. And of course he's accompanied on that track by this peerless group of master musicians, Nicky Hopkins on piano. Uh, Nicky Hopkins piano is just absolutely gorgeous, isn't it? Divine, it's stunning. Isn't it? Yes, every track he plays on, he lights up. And and even as a kid, as 12 years old, I recognised that. I didn't know who Nicky Hopkins was, but I, I could feel the beauty of the piano on that song. And Oh Yoko is another one where he plays great. And which are the tracks that you would have, you've kind of moved away from in that time? Mm, crippled Inside, It's So Hard, and purely for the lyrics, How Do You Sleep? Yeah, it's a curious record, isn't it? Because I think you read Lennon's interviews when he's talking about it. Um, and obviously kind of a lot of the interviews are done in the moment after the album come, mm. has come out. And he's so confident about where he's at when he's writing those lyrics. He, mm. he thinks, how do you sleep is hilarious. And he thinks, you know, there are, he, he thinks he's kind of opened something up 
in himself with some of the lyrics on like it's so hard and things like that yeah and it's kind of it's weird for us to hear it and kind of you know kind of certainly with how do you sleep to sort of cringe a little when you listen to those lyrics and yet the groove on how do you sleep Beautiful, is so it? good so yeah. so amazing they're all playing out their skins george's guitar in the background all the time yeah and, and it's not Keller's it's alan white on that one and yes Hopkins and klaus on the bass yeah what was it that made you choose this record of all the records to talk about today it was one that came into my mind fairly quickly as a record that I know well enough to to blather on about. Mm. I love it, of course, and I've loved it for a long time, but I know it very well. So I thought I could talk knowingly about it. I think um, it's interesting that one of the tracks you picked out as one that you're less keen on is It's So Hard, because mm. I think if there's a genre of... Um, a micro genre of music that I struggle with sometimes. It's that kind of early seventies rock and roll revivalism done in this quite sort of self-consciously bombastic kind of way, which is obviously Spectre's influence there as well. It's, it's a strange little thing where it seems like, you know, 15 years after the event, that there's a bunch of people revisiting rock, early rock and roll as if it, it was kind of like, you know, Dixieland jazz or something. Do you know what I mean? This strange yeah. kind of, you know, rapid, rapid kind of nostalgia. Maybe. Yes. When he did it well, like on Instant Karma, it was very powerful. Right. But this one, I don't think the song's good enough, really. Yeah. It's a bit of a throwaway song. And, and I was listening to it this morning, and I couldn't believe how bad the sound was. The guitar in the in the right-hand speaker, I guess it's John's rhythm guitar, it's so nasty. Mm. EQ in that guitar, man. But, I, I mean, I like John's nasty guitar. I like kind of that sort of when sort of that sort of plastic Ono band where he's almost kind of like, he learns to play that guitar by mirroring, mirroring Yoko's vocals on the, mm. on the, you know, on the Yoko yeah. plastic Ono band. And there is that kind of real nastiness with it. I think the issue I have, and you can kind of reading the, the big Imagine book that came out a couple of years ago, which is now available for a tenner, everyone, because um, they made too many copies and it's remaindered. So you can create, it's a beautiful book and you can grab it for next to nothing. But I was going back through that and, you can tell that like there's so many points where they're kind of just trying to rein Spectre in, just kind of oh. tell him to sort of, you know, just hold it back, you know, turn it down, turn down the delay, turn down the echo. And I think, and I don't know what you think, because obviously kind of like you have a different relationship to the album than I do, but one of the, the sort of barriers to my loving that album is I think Spectre's production. Okay. Uh, I don't, I have a problem with Spectre's production. I, I think the album is quite, um, how would I put it? I think it's a badly recorded record. Mm. For all that I love it, I, I was I was looking at, on Wikipedia, and of course I know it was recorded at John's studio in Ascot, his home studio, yeah. which he just built, and it's probably the first record to be made there. And you know, when you when you when you it's make the, your own studio, and I've done it myself, like in Spittle House when we did Fisherman's Blues. You don't have the sound that you get in a proper yeah. studio. And I was listening to Plastic Ono Band this morning too, recorded in Abbey Road, Cold Turkey recorded in Abbey Road. And there's a grounding to those recordings. There's a solidness and power, yeah. which Imagine doesn't have. It's got a, a, a loose ramshackle. It's not the playing, it's the sound. And, and 
I think probably if anything, Spectre helped with that. Yeah. Mask that. It's because I think it is the first proper sort of functioning sort of, you know, kind of eight track home studio or something, isn't it? Yeah. There's certainly, you know, there's certainly some precedent. Yeah. With, it's very um, lo-fi. Imagine itself when it comes in is a lo-fi recording. It's interesting. I went to the, um, the Yoko Ono exhibition that's on at the Tate Modern mm-hmm. and sort of, and they've got all her little kind of, um, you know, pages from grapefruit and all these little yes. scores that she wrote and kind of, and, you know, sort of the, and the, the imagined lines that obviously kind of were inspired by Yoko's writings and everything, they still have a power. And the, the issue I have with imagine is that when the, is the Lennon lines where he kind of turns it into a, I hope someday you may join us and come and, you know, there's something, yeah, kind yeah. Of, I find there's something saccharine yes. in what Lennon brings to it. Yes, Whereas there's a, there's a sort of, I suppose with the Yoko line, she's aware of the fact that these things are kind of unachievable, you know, which is one of the things in her work that she's given you kind of like things to imagine that could not happen in real life, mm. you know? And I don't know what, what do you think of imagine Mike? I don't like I wonder if you can imagine yes. sessions. I wonder if you can, and of course, as you've probably noted yourself, uh, Neil Young sang it in two thousand and one after nine eleven. He changed. I wonder if I can, which is very yeah. powerful. And, and I checked out John's live history with Imagine, and he didn't do. This, he didn't have many opportunities to sing it live. He did it at the Madison Square Garden concert in seventy two. He did a Jerry Lee, uh, sorry, a Jerry Lewis telethon. A few days later, and he did it at the the Lou Grade tribute concert in '75. His last, which I think is, which I think is on that version is on YouTube. I well, think they're all on YouTube. Oh, right, okay. And he, he changed it in in all of those to I wonder if we can, which at least yeah. is an improvement. That's yeah. a very funny thing he does on the Lou Grade performance when he goes, and it's real proper Lennon Scouse humor. He goes, "You may say I'm a dreamer," and then he goes off, mate. And he goes, "He's a dreamer." <laughs> I love that. It does it twice. But there is, yeah, because it, it, removing that sort of, you know, pious kind of patronizing Peachy, quality yes, yes. that the song has. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But don't you think that, like, I suppose in defense of that stuff, the, the tension between Yoko's approach to art and Lennon's approach to art, when it's juxtaposed as starkly as that, is quite interesting. Like oh, absolutely. His, his chronic honesty versus her more... I don't want to call her cerebral because I think her art is very emotional and engaging as well, but but that she has maybe a different perspective on, on revelation, self-revelation. Maybe. Yes, a different wavelength, isn't she? Yeah. Yeah. The, the, that point in chronic honesty, I think, and you singling out um, Jealous Guy, Mike, um, I was listening to that kind of and just marveling at how kind of, simultaneously kind of seductive and brutal that song is and yes. how honest it is about the self and kind of and yet and yet presented in this way that feels kind of very romantic and seductive i think it's a it's a it's a song that continues to surprise me because it is kind of so melodically and lyrically con- almost contradictory yes i see i hadn't thought of that before but i see that yes Yes, very powerful. I'm getting goosebumps as you say that, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Nailed. 
I think it. I think it's a great gift to be able to go, go back to this music and listen to it as if afresh, and and try and remove the cultural baggage which has accumulated over songs like Jealous Guy and Imagine over the years. I think it, sometimes it can be really hard. Isn't yeah. it wonderful when he takes the whistling solo? And yes. It's backed, backed by an orchestra. <laughs> whistling solo backed by an orchestra. It's so wonderful. And there's an interesting moment in Imagine at the end of How Do You Sleep when when John sings. The only thing you've done was yesterday, and since you're gone, you're just another day, and pretty soon we'll see what you can do. And I thought it's 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 a sort of sad line, because after Imagine, John made very few great records, and yeah. hardly made, made quite a lot. Maybe that's part of what, what makes us a little bit more equivocal about the lyrical content of this record than maybe we would have been a few years ago. Mm. I don't I think, know what that yeah, means. Yeah, I've never I've never thought about that before in that way, but there's there's a there's a real I mean there's a lot of sadness in Imagine, not just the sadness that Lennon intends, but yeah. there's also kind of there is a vulnerability, there's a hubris yes. and both of both of those yes. things are yes. bring sadness, but I've never thought about how do you sleep in that line, but it is it's it's a heartbreaking little song from that perspective. Yeah. I think there's a sense I get is that this was this has turned out to be Lennon's last great uh, album moment. I think there's yeah. some great tracks like Happy Christmas War is over, a couple on rock and roll, uh, whatever gets you through the night. But this was the last serious artistic statement that he made. Yeah. And and I can feel he's still, there's still a bit of Beatle magic around it. There's a couple of tracks, I think Jealous Guy and, and Give Me Some Truth, where the tunes date from the Beatle era. Yeah. The jealous guy, as I'm sure you know, was Child of Nature from the White Double. Give Me Some Truth turns up uh, in the Get Back sessions. It was in, in the movie briefly. Uh, uh, and and he's just just about to come out of the the still potent mists of Beatledom. And then he goes to New York and he's out of it. That's it. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing that's fascinating about it is then I think you must have a perspective on this is kind of he's such a great arranger in terms of the musicians he brings in yes on imagine yes there, there's no, i don't think there's a bad choice on that record in terms of like and there's just some you know we've talked about kind of um king curtis which king curtis triple tracked yeah. on i don't want to be a soldier it just sounds yeah. incredible yes and uh, and you know alan white and klaus vorman playing the upright bass together on crippled inside and yeah. things like that I mean, from that perspective, as as a, as a fellow kind of, you know, arranger and bringer together of musicians, how do you listen to Imagine in that sense? Uh, yes, masterful assemblage of musicians and deployment of them as well. Yeah. Really brilliant. And I think that continued on John's later albums. I don't think the songwriting was up to scratch, like Mind Games and, and yeah. uh, Walls and Bridges. But but the choice of musicians, with Walls and Bridges, he's got Klaus Keltner, Jesse Ed Davis, Nicky Hawkins, a brilliant band, always surrounded himself with good musicians. Yeah, absolutely. And if we were to sort of, I think, go out on, if you had chosen the track to lead off. And perhaps we can say if you would choose a track for Imagine to go out on, which would be the track that you would choose and why? Oh, well, I think he closed the album with the right track, which is Oh Yoko. Do you know, I was saying that I thought Jealous Guy was Beatle quality. I think Oh Yoko is Beatle quality too. It's the only track on the album where he, he ventures into the surreal, you know, in the middle of a cloud, in the middle of a shave. Isn't that lovely? Yeah. 
It's brilliant. And in the middle of a bath, I call your name. And this Hopkins piano line running right. You should have a, you should have a publishing credit on it, really. Beautiful piano line. What a wonderful track that is. There's, there's so much joy in it. So after all the, the, the vulnerability of the album and the heaviness of so many of the tracks, we go out in this beautiful sea of joy. Yeah, perfect. Go out on a beautiful sea of joy. I think that we couldn't end it in a finer place, Mike. Um, thank you so much for giving us a chance to talk about a record that in many ways I felt, felt might have been talked out, but not so, not so. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking about you it. You are welcome, Andrew and John. You're listening to the Motor Record Club with me, club with me, club with me. You're listening to the Motor Record Club with me, to the Motor Record Club. That glorious, Mike. Thank you so much. I'm going to demand that everyone, everyone does that from from now on. (laughs) Nothing, nothing less, nothing less will satisfy. Okay, now we get to the part of the show where we talk about our favorite current releases. My choice is. Activator, the new album by Gerish, Powers and Rarlin, who are basically the Columbus-based duo of dulcimer player Jem Powers and guitarist Matthew J. Rarlin, with the addition of Cleveland-based drummer Jason Gerish. Jen and Matthew have been releasing music together since 2018, which is round about when I started following uh, Jen on Twitter and sort of found out that as well as a brilliant um, tweeter and someone who recommends fantastic records, she actually made music. And I probably described their sound as kind of blissed out psych folk etheria. They occasionally expand out into a trio with musicians. They occasionally expand out into a trio with musicians such as Gerish and the ambient saxophonist Cole Pulis. And when they do, it's so good. This is probably their, this is their latest collaboration and it's absolutely gorgeous. It's kind of rambling, hallucinatory, sparkling, revelatory, and with a kind of an almost kind of free jazz quality to its exploration, but not in any, not in any way that you might consider scary. There's a kind of organic, euphoria to their music that i find utterly beguiling kind of lsd dropped into the appalachian wells and kind of you know and sort of spreading out through all the kind of um, dulcimer and banjo and guitar players in the hills here is a little clip from the hypnotic 10 minute title track written by garish powers and rarlin and released on the one two xu label I wish we could play more of it, to be honest. It's like, I'm not sure what kind of podcast it would be if we did just shut up for 10 minutes. And, <laughs> it would be uh, the like best that. podcast, yeah, John. Yeah, less us, more garish powers rolling. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, what a great record. Uh, um, I think I've spent 20 odd years spending a lot of my kind of time as a writer rather than as an editor writing about records that are adjacent to this, these American underground records that uh, mix folk traditions with psychedelia, a fair bit of avant-garde and improvised music, a little bit of jazz, God knows what else really. You know, it's like I th- there are several hundred sunburned hand and a man records, and I think I've probably reviewed, you know, a dozen or so of them. Um, and th- it's it's a very rich work, well to draw from. But what I would say about this this record, Activator, is that if you've ever wanted a way into this scene and been a bit daunted by it all, it's a really good place to start. And I think hopefully, hopefully that little clip we played of Activator, the title track. Gives you gives you a sense of of that way in because it, it's so it's so unaffectedly pretty really it's 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 sweetly engaging uh, and you only I think you only gradually pick up on all the free stuff the, the that's going on underneath it it reaches points of extremity and hairiness in the most effortless and graceful way I think it's I was trying to um, I, I wrote a very short review of it for the last issue of Mojo and I was trying to articulate something about it and I didn't have room. And I think I finally realised yesterday when I was playing it again, it's, it's almost like schizophrenia, that, that wonderful Sonic Youth song from um, Sister, isn't it? Mm. Rescored as a kind of a campfire lullaby. There's, it's not like there's any lyrics or anything, but it's this kind of, it's this unaffected strumming that that is so kind of simple really is probably the best word but but then gets incrementally more sophisticated and complex well you watch them i've when you go you can go on youtube and um or aquarium drunkard who are big fans and watch little clips of them playing live and one of the things that i find fascinating about them is the way in which you are just eased into their world all the time then you kind of watch them start playing and you think this is nice i like this this is nice I like the sounds made by the guitar. I like the sounds made by the dulcimer, the effects pedals and everything. And then, you know, 10 minutes later, <laughs> you've been taken to this wondrous place and you're not entirely sure how they've done it. I think it's kind of like, I, I, I think um, the writer Neil Gaiman once said of the short stories of Robert Aikman, it's like, it's like he's, betro- he's like, you've re- read a story by him. It's like he's performed a magic trick, but afterwards you're not entirely sure what the trick was or exactly how it was performed. And I feel like that about their music. There's there's something that they do that has an effect on you. But when you're watching them, you, it just seems like they're playing the most simple of instruments. And how are they possibly achieving this? I should say, though, that although um, when, when you went through the, what their lineup is, it's like, I, I guess a bunch of people are going to raise an eyebrow at a, at a trio, which includes a dulcimer. But yeah. it, it's kind of, it's not, exactly identifiable as a dulcimer quite a lot of the time no. I, th- I think th- there's another band i really love at the moment called setting um from north carolina who is uh it's kind of a synth banjo can't remember what the third bit is drums yeah. and but the banjo very rare it's nathan bowles and is the banjo player but it yeah. very rarely sounds like a banjo yeah. it's like i think when i wrote about that record i said he he kind of 
fripatronizes the banjo yeah. and i wonder if that's to a degree what's happening with um with with what jen's doing with, with the what stuff. jen's doing yeah. uh, frip it frip in the sense of the frippinino records rather than yeah. the king Crimson records i think the other thing that's quite important to mention about this record is i actually prefer it to the duo records they do the powers Rollins duos because i think um i think jason garish is a is a brilliant oh, jazz drummer, drummer basically yeah and, and, and just really... that kind of weight and drive that he gives their music, you yeah. know. And again, you were saying kind of that, that this album works as an entry point. And I think that's one of the reasons because he just gives it this kind of groove that is just so powerful, you know. While at the same time, it's quite free as well. Yeah, but he, and he anchors them as well, yeah. you know. It's kind yeah. Of, yeah, it's cracking stuff. Absolutely wonderful. Yeah, have a go. Um, well, follow that as they say, John. I'll, f- I'll follow it with something completely different, I think. Um, my pick for this episode is What Now, the second solo album from Brittany Howard. You might know Howard from her initial success fronting the Alabama Shakes. She was the big voice driving their, I guess we could call it a Stax Meets Garage rock sound. That's pretty reductive, but that's pretty much what it was at the start. I think that was... Um, as a, as a concept for a band, I thought it was a great idea, but it was also one that maybe got old pretty fast. And I have a strong suspicion that Brittany Howard, to her credit, evidently spotted that too. So through the second Alabama Shakes album, Sound and Colour, and then onto her first solo album, Jamie, and this second one, What Now? Howard's been working on, maybe we can call it expansive aquarium kind of psychedelic soul sound. I actually, um, I went to see her in Nashville to interview her around sound and color. And she was sat around in her front room. I'm not sure. I don't think she lives there anymore or she, maybe she's moved back. But anyway, she was sat around in her front room with a guitar trying to work out how to play Curtis Mayfield's think, which was to a degree an indication of where she was heading. But maybe the reference point that gets stuck to her most nowadays, and which I think is a valid one, is Prince. Because she's so good at making pretty disparate ideas rub together really well. I think there's a great bit on what now, when she follows this pumping house tinge tune, which is called Prove It To You. Not saying, by the way, that Prince made many pumping house tinge tunes, although I would perhaps quite enjoyed it if he'd he, had a go. He probably did, but we just yeah, haven't heard yeah, it yet. Exactly. It's buried away in some archive somewhere. Yeah. But anyway, she follows that with this very drowsy, lovely jazz tinge song called Samson, which ends up in this kind of elevated, sort of strung out, early 70s Miles Davis kind of vibe to it, um, with a trumpet, which I've got to confess, I forgot to look up who plays the trumpet. And maybe we'll add that into the show notes because I feel slightly <laughs> guilty uh, neglecting the um, the musician because it's really good. But it, it's um, it's a great record. And, and also, I should say, um, the tracks are connected by the sound of singing bowls. And I'm a sucker for singing bowls. So even if this record was just 45 minutes of singing bowls, then I'd probably kind of be raving about it as well. Okay, maybe we should hear that moment on What Now and the, the fade out from Prove It To You feeds into this sort of blown out, stoned mile soul of Samson, written by Brittany Howard and from the new album... What Now? What Now? 
<laughs> and released on Island Records. revelation for me john as i'd stayed away from the alabama shakes kind of and saw them as a kind of very much as that sort of faux stacks garage rock thing that really never did anything for me i was never convinced i, I you know i hated the sort of reverb they put on everything i did, I did, did that sort of curatorial breakbeat drumming it was kind of like you know when you feel like somebody is selling you something so hard that you actually go the other way and you don't want it but this this is wonderful and so thank you it's kind of dreamy meditative psychedelic funky and 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 for all for all their efforts i never believed that the alabama shakes had the funk and i believe it in these in this record and also the track red flags which i thought was amazing which reminded me of early tv on the radio which yeah. i think can only be a good thing so so yes to this and 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 yes to more singing bowls and um yes 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 to Brittany howard thank, yeah thank she's so um, much it it, tie, it ties in a lot with um i think it fits in with a lot of that kind of new soul around from the 90s it, yeah it, the, the definite aspects of d'angelo and erica badu yeah. to some of what she does that kind of aqueous sound it, it, there's something yeah. kind of um yeah it, it's it's a very kind of if I'd ever, if I'd ever done, if I'd ever been, you know, able to do quaaludes, I imagine kind of like that it has that kind of quality where everything is kind of just melting around the edges, you know, and you're just yeah. sort of sinking back into your kind of couch and just kind of losing yourself in this kind of malleable, warm, <laughs> little world. She, um, she, uh, had a sort of in the in the house I visited in I think it was about 2015 or something like that she um I had a sort of little home studio in the basement and she was playing me um her demos for what became the sound and colors um uh Alabama Shakes record and they're very similar in some ways to uh what she's ended up doing solo but they also sounded they also sounded like um like Shuggy Otis or oh, also yeah. like, or like, you know, those, um, you know, those demos that came out a few years ago from Sly Stone doing demos for his label. I think the Stone yeah. Flower demos or something like that. There was yeah. that kind of vibe to it. But also, that, oh, that sort of rhythm ace drum machine on them. and everything. Right. Exactly. And she was, but also she was playing a record down there and um, it sounded amazing. And and I looked at what it was, and it was Caravanserai by Santana. Oh, yeah. But but she, her um, 
her her turntable was kind of bust. So it was playing at, I would estimate, probably about 21 revs per minute, maybe 17 oh, revs amazing. per minute. So, so, yeah. so, so it was it, so kind of draggy and sort it, of freaked so it's out. Kind of like a, it's got a sort of syrup DJ screw kind right, of exactly, um, yeah. quality to it as well. Perfect. And, yeah. But that gives it that kind of amniotic sort of it's that yeah. kind of amniotic vibe i mean i'm not saying it's it makes it sound like this whole record is kind of quite sort of strung out and it really isn't at all it's but it's very varied as hopefully yeah. prove it to you then but it's we're, just we're it's pre- really about the place that it takes you to is a very kind of just warm and warm and fuzzy place it's yeah good. it's, a, good it's, place cool, it's a cool record i like the fact that she's kind of a mainstream artist in the states now and yeah Fantastic. she's making this pretty yeah, pretty out there, interesting music. Excellent, because I would not, have, I would not have sought this record out. So thank, thank you so much for that. Okay, you have been listening to Mike Scott, John Mulvey, and myself, Andrew Mail. That was the Mojo Record Club. We hope to see you at the next one. You can all join in and look in the episode description for full details of all the tracks we played and extra musicians that we couldn't remember um, earlier on. And don't forget with season two to like and subscribe it helps keep us going thank you very much Listening to the Mojo Record Club with me, Mike Scott from the Water Boys. Yeah, you've been listening to the Mojo Record Club with me, Mike Scott of the Water Boys. Thank you for listening to the Mojo Record Club with me. This and That by Mal Evans and Peter Bendry.